We're going to be in 1 Peter 3, starting with verse 8. And what did we cover so far in this book? We covered submission to government. We covered submission in relationships. We, and today we're really going to cover submission to God's will regarding our lifestyles, regarding who we are and how things permeate us and how we really come off to others based on our lifestyle. And it's going to prepare us and certainly Peter's audience for trials and sufferings that we will face to various degrees down the road. Remember, Peter is writing to a, the Apostle Peter to a dispersed church throughout the far reaches of the Roman Empire. Uh, some of them may be tempted to do the wrong thing because, hey, you know, I'm not really near any other Christians and, you know, when in Rome do as the Romans, right? Literally. And he was explaining to them how their behavior should be because God is seeing. Uh, also, those that are feeling frightened, alone, uh, he encourages them with this letter. So this letter has a multifaceted uh, approach, but we can also see some 2,000 years later how we are affected by the Apostle Peter's letter. So we're going to jump in. Verse 8, he says, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous. Finally, or literally to sum it all up, all of you, all of us. So we saw the individual approach to certain groups, and now we see to the Christian community in general, to the church community, all of us, we need to follow what he's saying here. We need to submit to God's word. This is the first part of this letter that I'm going to break up, which is the foundational part. So here's where we lay the foundation, and then we put the rest of the structure on top of that. Number one, be of one mind. We're all supposed to be working for the same goal. We complement each other, C-O-M-P-L-E-M-E-N-T, instead of I-M-E-N-T. We're in unity, we're in harmony in our community, in our church, in our marriage. Do we live as though the church body is our spiritual family and co-laborers? Questions to ask ourselves when we go through God's word. Two, have compassion for one another. In the Greek, the word is sympathes, where we get the word sympathy from in the English. Do we weep with those who weep? Do we have a genuine concern when others, other brothers and sisters, fall into trials? Three, love as brothers. The word is philadelphos. We spoke about agape, that high form of love that only we can be in the spirit. The Holy Spirit is moving us to employ that agape love. But this is philadelphos. This is that brotherly love, right? Do we have that fraternal love for one another? as if other believers are our close biological siblings. You know, the men's group was, was yesterday, Saturday morning, and I tell you, I look forward. Yes, I had a study for two messages this week, but I look so forward to meeting with my brothers. You know, hey, how's it going? Shaking hands, how's things going? Hearing praise reports, just that, you know, that, that, that fellowship amongst each other, and, that's what, and ladies too, and even in a mixed fellowship, right, with each other. Um, and it, what's really cool is every month, uh, two guys take turns uh, cooking the breakfast for the men. And uh, what I'm trying to do is uh, train them so that ladies, when they go to you at home and try it, if we don't get sick, then they just did a great job. <laughs> but every, every month, these guys do a wonderful job cooking that breakfast. It's just a lot of fun. Uh, four, be tender-hearted. 
the Greek word indicates coming from our innards. Some of these older languages have more depth than the English, especially the Hebrew. I love you with my bowels. Like, what is that all about? You know what I'm saying? But it's really, you know, that, that you just, it's just coming from the inside. So uh, coming from our innards really it literally means coming from our abdominal organs. So it's not window dressing. It's, it's sincere love for each other. Five, be courteous kind, humble. Taken together, God puts us in spiritual families. We glorify God when we love and work together to accomplish his goals and God's purposes. Now, another example is VBS. You know, I didn't, I didn't ask what the itinerary was. I just wanted to be surprised. And every Wednesday, I come in and I, I see what's going on in VBS. It's just amazing. Even some uh, believers who've never really gotten involved before, maybe not knowing where they fit in, for the first time serving, everybody was smiling. The kids were running around. I mean, who's doing a skit? Who's taking the information? Who's watching the kids so the adults can enjoy uh, Wednesday evening service? Everyone fit in. It was probably one of the best examples I've seen of Christians coming together, working together, and all having an equally important part. So it just was very exciting. What a blessing the servants were to me and to you and to the children, right? Do we take time to get to know our church family? Do we pray for our missionary families? We spoke about our missionaries in Afghanistan. That is a hard mission field. All right, when I heard about the, the, uh, the team that was killed, I was concerned. Was that our people? You know, you have to kind of wait and see what's going to be said. They're an extension of us, folks. They are our family. They're doing a very difficult job over there. And it's really motivated out of love. There's no worldly gain that these, these people get from this. And when the trials come, if we don't build relationships with our church family, will anyone know us when we fall into trials? Right? It's not, it's not a good time to find out when it happens. Verse 9. He says, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. So don't return evil for evil, reviling for reviling. What does the world say? One good turn deserves another. One bad turn deserves another. But we're not supposed to react as the world reacts. But give a blessing in return for evil. That's hard, isn't it? Listen, I'm not going to stand up here and say, yeah, hey, do that every time and it's a piece of cake. It isn't. It isn't easy. It's definitely an exercise in the spirit when we do that. But the Bible says that we, we get a blessing from that. You know, it pleases the Lord, and we won't be disappointed. And there are times that I've dug my heels in and said, I'm just not going to do it. You know, this person wronged me, and whatever the case may be, and, you know, usually the Holy Spirit and my wife work on me, and I come to my senses, and i got to tell you, every time I've been blessed. I can't tell you one time that I've submitted to the Lord, and I've been disappointed, you know. So we have to look at that. Uh, we may be called to practice this in our marriage, in the workplace, with other believers. Are we ready for that? To give up our rights and lawful justice to show mercy. America is all about our rights, but sometimes we give up our rights to show mercy. That's what the Lord did when he gave his only begotten son to die for our sin. He, he had the complete right as the Lord of the universe to just wipe us all out. And just kind of start a colony of robots that, you know, that he can just, you know, make them love him. But he didn't do that. He gave his son. He gave up his rights 
to justice, and he showed mercy instead. And that's hard. Why is it hard? If I can hone in on one thing, it's vulnerability. That's the word, vulnerability, right? To, it's funny, too, because as a, I've always been taught as a police officer in law enforcement for 19 years now that you, you're not vulnerable. You put up that wall, you know, put up the castle walls and the boiling hot oil and the, uh, the sentries out on, on the gate because if you're vulnerable, you're dead out on the street. And then I became a Christian, and then I learned about vulnerability. Boy, was that hard. It had to, I had to kind of take it 180 degrees and make myself, my heart, vulnerable to others. And again, that's an exercise in the spirit. It doesn't come through reading books. It doesn't come through making yourself or making uh, New Year's resolutions. That is an exercise in the spirit, because in the flesh, I know I can't do it, right? And then the Apostle Peter quotes, uh, as I read these verses, uh, Psalm 34 and 37 in verses 10 through 12. So let's go through them. Uh, Verse 10, he says, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So he who would love life and see good days, let him do the following. But before we get to do that, do you love life? Is your life a trudgery? And I don't say this in a condemning way, but uh, really in an encouraging way. It doesn't have to be. There are some who go through life just kind of wishing the end would come uh, or or worse. Uh, Life is a trudgery, but it doesn't have to be. I can tell you that the more we're obedient to God's plans, you know, see, that's what we were made for. We were made, number one, to come back to him. That's the void that we all seek. We try to fill it with cars and boats and money and promotions, and it just never works. It always falls short. It's good for a little while, but it's just a little feeling that you get. However, we were made to come back to the Lord. We were made to glorify God once we've come back to him, you see, And once we follow his plan and we're obedient and stop running, like Jonah. There's a lot of Jonas in the Christian community. Once we stop running, it breeds joy and optimism. Not a joy for the sake of joy or optimism for no reason, uh, that we take happy pills in the morning. It's optimism based on a living hope, and we covered that. But the person who would love life and see good days must do the following. Number one, don't speak evil and don't be deceitful. Don't be part of the drama that the world or maybe your carnal friends are involved in. You know, if you've got carnal friends, hopefully you're influencing them and they're not influencing you. Hopefully it's going in one direction. Two, turn from evil and do good. There's your definition of repentance, a change in direction of our lives. If we don't know the Lord, we stop. We're confronted with the Lord and we stop in the road of our self-directed ways and we turn towards him and start following him now and admit that my life up to this point has not been pleasing to the Lord, and most of it has been wrought with sin, right? So that change of direction. Three, to seek peace and pursue it. In other words, that's amazing, seek it and pursue it. In other words, don't let it go once you've found it, right? It's a lifelong quest. Now, what it isn't, just to make sure we understand this, number one, it's not peace at any price, to compromise our values for the sake of a false peace. We know that in our future, in human history, there will be a false peace, and it will be a deceptive peace, and it will be uh, wrought by the forces of, of evil. And we'll see that, probably will be from the mezzanine, we'll see that 
it's going to really cause the world to be uh, thrown into chaos. And two, it doesn't mean a life absent of conflict. Believe me, the more you raise your hand and say, I want to serve the Lord, you'll have more conflict. That's a given. We're going to cover some of that stuff, right? You've experienced it. Romans 5, though, let me just talk about the different phases of peace that the scripture speaks about. Romans 5 says that when we come to the cross, number one, we have peace with God. The enmity between God and the holy God and sinful man is broken. There's a ceasefire. There's peace, right? Two, Romans 12, if possible, live at peace with all men. If possible, it says. Sometimes it's impossible, but we do the best we can. But there's a third type of peace. It's that peace that surpasses all understanding, Philippians 4. That's a characteristic of peacefulness, of stillness, of your spirit, right? And is that what we exude? Is that what our lifestyle reflects? Or are we always frazzled or doing things in our own strength or even working for God's love? My wife was telling me at the women's devotion, she uh, was teaching the women, uh, ladies, many of you, many people are working for God's love. It's a trudgery. She said, enjoy him. He already loves you. Be at peace. Enjoy him. Enjoy his, his peacefulness, you know, and his love for you. Receive that. The greatest compliment we can ever get as believers is when someone stops you and says, you know, I've been watching you, my fellow employer or my family member, and, you know, no matter what happens around here, you seem to have this peace. You know, we're all understandably up in arms and upset, and you're just, what is with you? You know what I'm saying? And they see that, and they say, gee, if, if I'm honest, I'd like that peace too. That is one of the best compliments we can receive because it shows that the Lord is working in our lives, that regardless of the circumstances, right? Verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Number one, the Lord's start with the eyes. His eyes are on the righteous. We are never alone. Even if our feelings betray us into thinking we're alone, God has forgotten about me. All those promises are good for everyone else and all the Christians, but God has forgotten about me. That is a lie. Our feelings will betray us. We may not feel good when we wake up in the morning, but that means nothing. It's not an indicator of anything. Two, so we got the Lord's eyes. Two, the Lord's ears are open to our prayers. Our lonely cries of help never go unheard. Again, our feelings may betray us into thinking that our cries are going unheard, but they're not. The Lord hears our cries. And three, the Lord's face is against those that do evil. The wicked will be punished, even if they seem to prosper now. Let it not be so with us, brothers and sisters. You know, if someone's really persecuting you and they're really tormenting you and give you a hard time, you'll get through the trial. But if they're in rebellion against the Lord, they will be tormented forever. That's a perspective check. And when we understand the proper perspective, it will cause us, even though they've given us such a hard time, to feel a sense of pity for them. Because the trial that they're perpetrating upon us is temporary. But hell is eternal, right? Pray for those people. Pray for our enemies. And this is a way of life. Peter is building their foundation, their core, because without it, the rest of the chapter that I'm going to read will be very hard to live, if not impossible. Right? This is not just a Sunday morning message. Peter is giving them a, a message of lifestyle. Okay? Lifestyle. 
Verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify, set apart the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Who would harm you if you would do good? That's the way it starts out. So here's the norm. Here's the government paradigm that we covered a few Sundays ago. The government is there to reward those peaceful citizens, good civics-minded, and to punish the evildoers. That's the norm. That's the way the government's supposed to work. Unfortunately, in some of these countries, it doesn't work like that. Right? That's the, the, the proper government paradigm. But keep in mind, per- persecution is on its way to many of Peter's audience, many of their readers, and maybe to some of us today who are hearing this. In verse 14, there are times when we get persecuted for doing good, and we saw that with Jesus himself. He, hit, he hit, lived a life of sinlessness. And he, unfortunately, he was even uh, bothered or persecuted or abandoned by his own followers. So his whole life was a life of living good, and, and he was the best example of being persecuted for doing good. And this is not, these are not particularly biblical promises that we necessarily look forward to. When you get your little Bible promise book about God is there and God is listening, uh, certainly we don't want to see these. The one that says, 2 Timothy 3.12, all those that desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. Oh, gee, that's something I can look forward to, right? But take heart, aside from the physical, even if you are being persecuted, Jesus says this in Matthew 10, 28. He says, don't fear the one who can kill you, who can take the body, and after that can do nothing else with you. He said, fear the one who, after the body is taken, has the power to take the soul and cast it into into hell forever. There's a proper perspective there. So, and listen, we all want to hold on to our lives. Um, There's that instinct in us. There's that desire to hold on to our lives. Nobody wants to die, Right? But have a proper perspective on who's the one that we should show reverence to. Verse 15, but, he says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts or give him first place in everything. Sanctify, set apart that special place in your heart that's reserved for him and him alone. Not the Bible plus or Jesus plus. It's just for him and him alone. Sanctify. It's a state of mind. And when that's truly done, nothing can compete with that special place that you have reserved for the Lord. No fear, no worry, no concerns, you know, things like that. Now, I have to say this, that oftentimes we want or we say that we want God to take our burdens, but we still try to hold on to them. We pray, Lord, take, you know, Jesus said, take off your pack, take mine, it's lighter. My yoke is easy, right? My burden is light. And we say, oh, Lord, 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 please take on this burdensome pack that I've had all my life. All right. So you start to take it off, and the Lord's ready to take it, and you've still got one finger on the strap. And, you know, Lord, please take it. Well, then let go. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Let go. But I've had it all my life. You know, I, there is a little bit of an attachment now. And I'm just, of course, making a humorous uh, parody of the, of, the, of the spiritual and sometimes when we deal with the Lord. We say something with our lips. We say we believe with our lips. But sometimes our actions tell a different story. 
We say that we trust him, but our fears and our worries dictate otherwise. He says, and always be ready to give a defense, notwithstanding the circumstances. So the second part of this is behavior based on that state of mind, that sanctifying the Lord God in our hearts. And the word for defense is apologia, which is where we get the word in the English, uh, the English apologetics from, a defense of the faith. This is a, actually, in those days, was a quasi-legal term. In Roman courts, you would give a, an apologia for a, a defense that you were trying to mount. Now, this isn't, again, our faith is not blind faith. Our faith is based on something. It's based on reality. It's based on truth. We don't have faith just because we have faith. That makes no sense. So it's that apologia. If we truly believe God has everything under control, our actions will show it. We will vigorously defend the faith and not be sidetracked by, quote, my circumstances. And it's not a bad idea to challenge ourselves to get to know more about God and his word. You know, um, just pray for the leadership here because we have a lot of opportunities, uh, especially with the fellowship hall downstairs, and that can be turned into a conference room. We've had... uh, uh, some have come to us and said, you know, this would be a great place for a Calvary Chapel Bible College. I mean, just a perfect setup for it. And I'm liking the idea because what I'd like to do is uh, give the opportunity for those who want to know more about their faith, who really hunger for God's word, who want to understand the scriptures in their totality and to be able to give a defense uh, to explain the hope that is in them. Just out of curiosity, raise your hands. Who would desire a venue all right, to have a better understanding of what you believe. How many? You, know, you can always learn something. Well, that makes my decision a lot easier. <laughs> and, you know, just like we were speaking about in the, uh, uh, Sherry was speaking about in the announcements about the women's Bible study, the way we feel here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields is uh, that no matter what your issue is, if it's a women's Bible study, a Bible college, if you can't afford the material, we'll buy it for you. We never want finances to be an obstacle to anyone understanding the Lord more and developing a greater faith. No matter what the situation is here, we may want to cover costs, but listen, you raise your hand and say, I just can't afford it. It's no questions asked. We'll take care of it for you. So Peter goes on with gentleness, meekness and fear, or gentleness and respect. According to Peter, We exemplify Jesus by our behavior, and we don't hammer others into the kingdom. Sometimes we we become new believers, and I probably made every mistake in the book, so I can speak through my experiences. We get a little overzealous, a little overexcited, and we jump on uh, others. We jump on your family members, you jump on your friends, and you just, you know, you're you're like a a puppy that just jumps all over people's legs, right? Right? And I was there. <laughs> I've learned from that. But we do it with meekness, uh, gentleness, and respect. That's how we bring the message of the gospel to others. Not making them feel stupid, not showing them how much we know, uh, not arguing and, and putting up a good argument for the sake of argument's sake, but to do it really with a respect and a love for the other person that you're trying to win to Christ, just like the way Jesus did it. And verse 16, having a good or a clear conscience, obeying God's word, even if you're being persecuted, the truth will eventually come out. And the Bible says, listen, if you're following God and you're taking abuse for it, those meeting out the, uh, the, the trouble or the persecution uh, will have to one day answer for it and be ashamed of what they did 
because they were hearing the truth and they were uh, ignoring it or mocking it. God won't be mocked. And this really comes down to two things. Number one, control and fear of man. We want to have control over our life and our circumstances. But oftentimes when we walk with the Lord, to various degrees we give up control and we let him take control and work through us. We become empty vessels, so to speak. So control is an issue that as human beings, you know, we always want to hold on to that control. And two, fear of man. We're concerned with what others think about us. We're concerned about how certain things will be received. But the Bible says just do it God's way and don't worry about the rest of it. You know, God looks at us as if uh, we're, um, um, you know, the way we want to do something, uh, our desire, the heart that we put into it. He's not necessarily looking for results because he says over and over again in his word that he is the one who's responsible for the results. We just are obedient and do what he calls us to do. Verse 17, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So sometimes God is, listen, it's just what it is. It's Jesus suffered. We can't think that we're better than him. The servant is not greater than the masters. Uh, And sometimes suffering is ordained, right? Godly men and women over the years, read Fox's Book of Martyrs, considered it an honor to die for Jesus Christ. Now, us as Americans, we live a, you know, we have freedom of religion and a lot of freedoms in this country. We're really not persecuted in that type of way. So that whole idea is a little foreign to us, but it happens. And here's hope. The Bible does not give us anything, or God doesn't give us anything that we can't handle. When I deal with a person who's going through an ordeal, uh, one of the things I'll say is that God is not allowing this to destroy you, maybe to break you, maybe to break your will in some respects, maybe to build you up stronger, to hone your character, to uh, refine your faith. But God doesn't do anything wicked to us. If someone is persecuting us, he will use that for good in our lives. And I'll say, you know, he, he must know that you can deal with this, that you have the ability to get through this trial. A little bit of a backhanded compliment for somebody when they're going through the trial. That's not what I was looking to hear. I just want it to be over with. But oftentimes when we look back on our trials, we see that the Lord did do something. Hindsight is twenty twenty. Let me read a quick passage. And I suggest, as believers, uh, this is a free periodical. It's called Voice of the Martyrs. It really tracks the persecuted church. This is uh, August 2010's issue. Very interesting. Uh, Egyptian man, 27 years old, Mohammed Hegezi. They have his picture. Uh, he uh, was Muslim and was one to Christ. And he says, he says this, after becoming a Christian 11 years ago, Hegezi was beaten regularly by his father until he moved out of the house two years later. In addition, he was tortured several times by Egyptian police. They tied a blindfold around his eyes, hung him upside down by ropes, beat him and shocked him with electric batons, trying to gather information about other Christians. In many of these countries, it's a crime to a Muslim person to become a Christian. Now, what's interesting about this is uh, there's no sensationalism here. I mean, they'll, they'll show you. This, these aren't real stories. You'll, you'll see the scars. You'll see the, the limbs that were hacked off. Uh, these Christians go through a lot, and they really count the costs. We say, oh, we want to be a Christian here, but there's really not much that we, you know, someone will make fun of us. But here, and when I talk to missionaries and they talk to these uh, locals about Christ, they want it so bad, but the wheels are turning because they know All these things, they're going to be ostracized by their family, by their community. They may lose their job. So this is a common occurrence around the world outside of the shores of the United States. It says, Islamic religious leaders called for his death. Higazi's house was burned to the ground, and his family is now in hiding. This story doesn't sound too healthy, does it? 
Yet when asked his thoughts on what the Apostle Paul calls tribulations, Hegezi told us, quote, I think that suffering is a most beautiful part of the Christian faith because Christianity without pain, without suffering, without hard times is like fast food. There's nothing true in it. It's very superficial, very shallow. Hegezi did not say that suffering is the only part of the Christian faith, but a most beautiful part. He is adding some of the salad, the fish, the bread of life to a less healthy spiritual diet of what merely tastes or looks good. And after all this, when they asked him, so are you looking to get out of the country? He goes, if all the Christians leave Egypt, he goes, who's going to minister to the rest of my people? It's amazing. Just amazing. uh, Such character. But Peter also says, to suffer for doing good is good, but to suffer, be punished or persecuted or prosecuted for doing wrong. Now, there's no honor in that. We get what we deserve. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So this is what we have. Verses 8 through 12, the beginning, was the foundation. That's the first part. Verses 13 through 17 was really the battering of the foundation. So what type of foundation do we have, brothers and sisters? When persecution comes, how will our, our fort hold up? I like to watch the Discovery Channel. I, I watched the, uh, a segment on Fort McHenry, the Battle of 1812. The Brits were bombing it from the, uh, the, the shores off of Maryland. And not only did they have the stones, but they had the earth to back it up. And that, that fort took such a battering, and uh, it never got uh, taken captive. So if we look at our faith as a fort, how strong is our fort? Is it weak? Can it take the batterings? Verses 18 through 22 is a, what's called the refortification. Now we speak about Jesus. And I say refortification with a pun intended. And what we see is through Christ's example and ultimate victory, what seemed like a failure on the cross, worldly people, even today, your Savior died on a cross. What's, what's up with that? That's weird. Uh, he wasn't revered. He wasn't, you know, at his death. Uh, it was a glorious death and everybody was around him. They don't understand it. It seemed like a failure. However, because of his death on the cross, we, who deserve punishment for our sins, now can have eternal life. We're going to get deeper into that. Verse 19, last few verses. By whom also he, Jesus, went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through baptism. There is also an anti-type which now saves us, namely baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. So the last part of this is really the victory march. This is, I liken this to a decisive battle that'll change the face of a war or a a, a war that's won in human history. What we have to do is take, because a lot of folks look at this and it gets a little confusing, but what we have to do is take it in its context of what the Apostle Peter was speaking about. So this is what you have here, a few elements. Number one, to decipher this. Jesus' death on the cross. Then the passage goes into some issue with Jesus speaking to some um, spiritual convicts 
And the third part of this is their association to the times of Noah. And then it kind of acquiesces into the flood of Noah. And then from the flood of Noah, we're into baptism, right? Then we're into the resurrection and ascension and then the intercession at the right hand of the Father. So what is this? You know, you, you, the flow is, it can be confusing. Well, let's break it down. Number one, victory at the cross. That's what it all go, points back to. It starts with the victory at the cross. Verse 18, salvation for sinners. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe would not perish but have everlasting life. Amen. The second part of this is 19 and 20 is this victory. This is where it gets a little confusing. Uh, this preaching or heralding to these wicked spirits uh, in prison. And basically, a lot of folks have different ideas on this. If you look at Genesis 6, you see this hybrid race of uh, apparently the sons of God mating with the, uh, the daughters of men between these angels, angelic beings, and, and humans. It's kind of weird, and that precedes the flood. That's in Genesis 6. Uh, we know that in Isaiah 61, and I'm going to tie it all in for you, Jesus uh, goes down and preaches to the captives right, and sets them at liberty. Uh, Ephesians 4, it says that Jesus ascended, but before he ascended, he first descended into the lower parts of the earth. This stuff gives you chills, because now we're taking a, a look into the spiritual realm. Per, stuff is pretty wild. Put it all together. Jude 1 speaks about some uh, ungodly spirits that are chained and reserved for darkness until the, the day of judgment. Revelation 9 speaks about in the times of Revelation where the pit is opened up and these demonic beings come up to uh, torment uh, humans uh, but other than that, they're, they're held down into this abyss. They can't get out. What you have is this uh, idea of the spiritual realm and different scriptures, more scriptures in Luke and that really kind of come into this. There were demonic beings. There were spirits that uh, some seemed to be around in the time of Jesus and he cast them out of people. There were others that were in, in chains of darkness and are stuck there until the day of judgment. There are some that are in the abyss. So my understanding is that there's different uh, levels of demonic beings, and some are just so disobedient that God can't let them out because they'll just destroy the face of the earth. So those are the ones that, you know, he, of course, he's more powerful than them, that he's holding them down. The other part of this is Hades. Remember the rich man and Lazarus, right? Abraham, when he dies, goes into the good part. Uh, the rich man, or Lazarus, goes into the good part where Abraham is, there's a huge gulf that there's no crossover. And then there's the bad part where the rich man went because of his disobedience. Uh, but the Bible says in the end, the Hades, that portion, the evil part, that's going to be taken at the great white throne judgment and dumped into the lake of fire, which is the final judgment. The other part of Hades, it does appear that when Jesus first descended, he let the captives free. In other words, those good folks, before Jesus' death and resurrection, before the atoning sacrifice, they couldn't be in regular fellowship with God because their sins weren't covered by the blood of Christ yet. So after his death, it is finished on the cross. He took the sins of mankind. He goes down to these areas, frees the good people, allows them to have that fellowship with God. Matthew tells us that, uh, that the graves were starting to open up and these people were coming out and a lot of in Jerusalem witnessed these events. Pretty wild stuff. And he also goes down to the part of the demonic part and basically tells him, your goose is cooked. And that's layman's terms. You're done. The war is over. It is finished. You, all, you, all you have to look forward to is, is to wait for the, the judgment and then you're being all thrown into the lake of fire. Now, the tie-in to Noah is that 
these demonic entities, it appears, were involved into the antediluvian era. So in other words, the pre-flood era, which led up to the flood because of this hybrid race. Make sense? Oh, good. One person said yes. <laughs> you know, I, I can just tell you that when I study this, uh, you, you, your hair stands up because there's just so much going on that we can't see. It, and it's pretty amazing. Uh, if you have trouble with that, please either see me after service or send me an email and I'd be more than happy to break it down on paper for you. Three, the other victory is the receiving, and this is constant victory after victory. The third victory is the receiving, sinners receiving or partaking of that victory, that baptism into Christ, that's man's responsibility. God gave the gift, man has to receive the gift. That's what a relationship is. It goes in both directions, Okay. And he says that not the water that cleans the filth off the body. We just read that. So in other words, when you get baptized, you become a believer. And you say, I want to be baptized, whether it's in the, the ocean or somebody's pool or whatever the case may be. It's not the washing of your body and the, you know, the dirt or smelliness off your body that saves you, right? It's not that type of thing. It's the action of baptism because you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You're baptized as the Holy Spirit. And then water baptism only is an outward confirmation of what's going on inside your heart. Remember the thief at the cross. He didn't get baptized. But Jesus said, you will be today with me in paradise. He didn't say, you know, I'm going to die. I'm going to be resurrected. Once I get off this cross, I'm going to take you down, put you in some water, and then we're going to heaven. He didn't say that. They both died. The thief ends up that day in paradise. So understand that baptism is just an outward indication of what's going on inside. And there's, there's types there too. Noah's family, all eight of them, partook of this type of salvation in boarding the ark. Remember, the ark of the, the flood, as the ark now takes these eight souls and passes over the judgment, you know, the, the whole world is flooded. The only thing that's living are those eight souls in the ark plus all the animals, as they're going through the water, uh, that's a type of baptism. You see, they, they pass through the judgment. Okay, so I'm trying to make this all make sense to you. Um, it does, again, that can look, as a, look at it as a failure, but eight souls were saved and repopulated the earth from there. So it wasn't a failure. And it was a type of the, of the, uh, the death and resurrection of Christ and salvation that came from that. So the type, it's, it's antitupon in the Greek, which means a type or representative now of something coming later that's actually better. The fourth part of this victory in verse 22 is that Christ has taken his rightful place for eternity at the right hand of the Father and from there continues to this day to make intercession for his saints. So we understand that. Now for the believer... Right? For, or, uh, for the unbeliever, excuse me, if you don't know the Lord and you're sitting here today, we are still in the age of grace. Now, I don't know when that's going to end. Only God does. But currently, while we're in the age of grace, you can come to the cross. You can come and uh, you can say, I want to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. That, that is available to you. But don't wait too long because uh, that age of grace is going to come to a close at some point. Christ's sacrifice is still applicable to the unsaved today. For the believer, number one, Christ makes intercession. We are endowed with the Holy Spirit. And we have everything we need to make it to the finish line. And this is what I want to encourage you with as we close. And I talked to the men about this uh, yesterday morning. Finish strong. Finish strong. That's my encouragement to you. I don't care where you are right now. Okay? If you're slacking, 
If you're not committed, if you have a lackluster faith, right now is the day to change that. You need to finish strong. Any of you, you who have played sports or in some type of competitive whatever, game or whatever, when you finish and you are taking the, the prize, that is an awesome feeling. You know, I, I didn't play a whole lot of sports, but when I did and I got a touchdown or whatever the case may be, it was great that my, my uh, co-comrades were uh, cheering me on, my fellow sports people, and they were excited for me and, and we were, there was hugs and there was excitement and we won the game. Now, how much better when you cross the finish line from this life into the next, and who's there to greet you but Jesus himself? What a scene. You walk into the heavenlies, Jesus is there, well done, my good and faithful servant. Yes, your life wasn't perfect. Yeah, you started a little late. No big deal. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And there's angels, and there's the living beings, and the heavenly host. We went through the book of Revelation when you read that book, man, you get chills. The, the, the living creatures that God has and the angelic host and, you know, in the flesh you'd be doing this the whole time. You know, it was shaking like a leaf. Finish strong. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for victory. We all love victory, whether it's our sports team or our military.